0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to This Is Some Scene. I am James Ippoliti and I am also the host of the Real Demons of Pop Culture podcast, and many more podcasts soon to come. This Is Some Scene was a podcast I produced back in the mid-2000s to about 2009, season one of This Is Some Scene is going to be those lost interviews, interviews with people like Tommy Wiseau, Joe Dante, Amber Benson, Crispin Glover, so many more at the dawn of podcasting. I had a group of people that had a lot of fun doing these podcasts. Now, the quality is not as great as it could be because it was at the beginning of podcasting where it was very hard. It also was recorded live. Most of the calls were live, as you will see. And so the quality is not to the standards of 2023, but they are pretty good for 2008, 2009, etc. You may hear the voices of Andrea. You may hear the voices of Eric Feasterville, also known as Chris Blake Sasser, So, grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and enjoy these interviews from the beginning of the podcasting universe. In season two, we will be introducing new interviews to continue the legacy of This Is Some Scene.
1: This is some scene. This is some scene. This is some scene.
0: Thanks so much again for coming on the show and taking your time to talk to me about everything. Yeah, no, happy to do it. First, Grady, I want to know do you believe in ghosts? And if so, have you ever had your own personal experience of any supernatural kind?
2: Yeah, um, I I believe in ghosts is a, uh, you have to define believe and ghost, uh, (laughs) in, um, but, but before that, but, but in general, I think people have very powerful, very, um, uh, intense, very personal experiences with things that they experience as ghosts. And I don't see any reason to try to take that away from them. And, um, Uh I've, I've had a couple myself.
0: All right. So, what's the origin behind creating how to sell a haunted house?
1: Um.
0: Well, there were a few things. One is
2: I knew I wanted to do something about a family. Uh, mm-hmm. Families are really hard to write. And it's uh, it. It just takes a lot of work, and families are mostly backstory. So there's a ton of stuff that never made it onto the page. Um, you know, just sort of getting the family history and all of that into order. Uh, I was actually going to open up a document and see if I could find some of that. But I realized it's in a different document than I thought it was. And I didn't want to sit there while I hunt around. Okay. But um, so yeah, so I had to have like, the Joiner family history mapped out from Louis, uh, Nancy's childhood all the way through sort of the present day year by year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a pretty big document. And then cousins and kids and families I mean there's so many people who didn't make it onto the page and usually you know when you're telling when you're talking to your family you may be having a conversation and mention your cousin you know Jimmy and you know uh and and Phyllis once in passing about something or in reference to something else because you know who they are, you've known them all your mm-hmm. life. They have a context right. in your family. In a book, you can't really do that. If you drop them into a conversation like that, you got to give a little um, explanation of who they are, and then the conversation gets bogged down and all that. So there were so many places where it felt really unnatural to me in the in the speech in the book and like between the characters and, and the interactions because all that stuff couldn't be there because it was just it was t- I, I couldn't leave people scratching their heads. But it was too dense to explain. So, in sort of mm-hmm. pruning it down, it winds up feeling very stylized to me. Um, but you know, that's that's that that's the limitation of writing in books. Um, so, yeah, so wanting to write about a family, and then, um, and part of that came from um, being the, but just sort of a challenge that I wanted to take on, yeah. And part of it was being in the pandemic and sort of not being around family and and sort of, yeah. You know, having wanting to a book takes a long time to write, and so you spend a lot of time with it. So the house in the book is my aunt's house, um, which is where we used to have big family get-togethers. It was a fun place for me to hang out in, uh, and and a family was a fun thing for me to have around and to think about a family and play with the family and and you know, and one of the things is if you're going to do a family story it's got to be a ghost story it has to be a haunted house story haunted house stories are inevitably about families uh, the shining the amityville horror burnt offerings uh, you know elementals they're all about family yeah yeah i mean even something like ann ann river siddons the house next door which Mm -hmm. isn't really you know it's a childless married couple but they get all into the family dynamic of the neighbors who keep moving into the the titular house So yeah, so that's kind of where it came from.
0: I'm gonna keep this spoiler-free, but what about the dolls? Mm. What was it that made you bring those in instead of doing like a traditional ghost haunting?
2: Well, because ghost hauntings have been done, and Mm -hmm. um, actually, there was a first. Oh, I'll talk about that in a second, but um, you know, a lot of ghost stories, which you know tie in with family stories, are about dealing with stuff that gets left behind, whether it's a cursed crib or um, family trauma or memories or uh, unresolved issues or, you know, curses passed down for generations Uh, or just stuff, just crap, just piles of clothes and books and, you know, uh, quilts and things. Um, And so the most fun thing to deal with for me, I was like, yeah, puppets and dolls. And there hadn't really been you know, in Paperbacks from Hell, there's a pretty significant portion of dolls and, and puppet horror. There hasn't really been a lot of it lately. Um, and, and so that was kind of fun to do. And also, dolls and puppets are really, you know, we have weird relationships with, we have weird relationships with inanimate objects in the first place. Like, right. you know, we, we stub our toe and say, oh, fuck you, man. Like, you know, to, right. to a door. Uh, you know, we yell at our cars, you know. <laughs> right. we, we 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 beg our laptops not to crash. Like, we develop, we sort of imbue this stuff with life and, and that sort of really gets taken to its furthest extreme with like childhood dolls and and things like that. And puppets are just dolls turned up to 11. Um, yeah, there actually was a version of this that was, um, a more traditional ghost story. There's a thing I've always really liked and it's, um, It was in Versailles, and I think it's known, sorry, I just want to make sure, yeah, the moberly jordan incident, which is um, where basically two women who were walking around Versailles uh, on a tour uh, just suddenly started noticing that everyone around them was dressed funny, and speaking Mm. of of French with an accent they didn't know, and, and seemed really surprised to see them, and then they just kept walking, and then they were eventually fine. And they thought it was like a time slip. And there's a theory of hauntings that ghosts are time slips. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a famous one, I think, in Phantasms of the Living from from the 19th century. The SPR put out, um, where someone walking on a path somewhere near some like a rocky countryside sees someone else, and then later they realize that like they're part of that group they just didn't recognize themselves 20 years later seeing the mm-hmm. because of their past and so i've always thought that was really interesting so there used to be a very early version of this book that actually was like it's funny when i first gave that draft to my editor she was like i hate having to cut this out cuz it's kind of the best written part of the book i was like Thanks. <laughs> uh, but it really was i was really proud of it but there was a nice like uh opening talking about how louise doesn't believe in ghosts because when she was a little kid she was in the hall listening to her parents fight and she saw like a ghost of an old crone and and the old lady uh grabbed her wrist and uh left a a burn on it and, uh, and then disappeared and um and i was gonna do a thing where now louise in her 40s sees the ghost of herself at three or four years old in the hall and is trying to communicate with her and grabs her wrist and you know, that contact, but you know, and so he yeah. is three years old. You just like anyone over 30 is an old person. Um, yeah, right. and it was, it was really a fun bit, but it just didn't have any purpose in the book
0: after a while. Yeah. I just read something that made me feel really old. Wilford Brimley. We are older than he was in cocoon.
2: Yeah, I know. I saw that. And it's I'm so like, nut.
0: Oh, that's just, well, hurt. you know,
2: he always had that middle-aged face. He just grew into it. Yeah. It's sort of like when you see Charles Bronson as a young man. You're like, he's got a middle-aged face. It just took him a while for, for his years to catch up with it.
0: Right. All right, so this idea of a time slip, is that something you might go back to in a future novel? I don't know. You know, time travel's really hard.
2: I had a time travel project I kicked around for a really long time. And the complicated thing with time travel and then like before I ever uh sold anything, I used to write screenplays a lot and I had a, a time travel screenplay. And um the problem with time travel is everything's like unless you develop really specific sciency rules, uh yeah. like Primer does, for example, mm-hmm. um or or uh The Infinite One Minute. Unless you do that, you get really stuck where you could do anything. So it's like yes. um there was a the the the, um thing i was doing uh the the when i was trying to do this time travel script i was like oh a guy invents time travel and then immediately you know well you invent time travel and eventually a big corporation that wants your invention is just going to time travel back to before Mm -hmm. you invented it put you on a work for hire contract that looks really good you're going to invent time travel they're going to own it so you never invented time travel like you know what I mean? It just gets so the paradoxes yeah, it's really pile hard.
0: up. Yeah, even in film, I think Back to the Future is great, and I think yeah. they did it really well. Um, But like in Bill and Ted, I mean they they get right themselves into a problem, and, and they're like, "Well, why don't we just go back in time and put the keys there, and that way they'll be there?" And then all of a sudden, the keys are there. Like they were able to fix any obstacle, but, but that that was meant for comedy. It works, but yeah, is probably a big reason i don't want to see the indiana jones because i think there's time travel in it Mm, and if that's the case it really changes a lot about the history of that story
2: you know what's interesting to me is um when you're dealing with things like like plays and and movies time travel well manipulating time is a really fun thing people don't do enough um You could really go deep. You know, you look at something like Michael Frayn's Noises Off, right? Where act one is this play that's falling apart. And then act two is the exact same play, but backstage. But behind stage. Yeah, right. Yeah. Or you look at Groundhog Day, you know, which has now become its own genre, practically, where it repeats the same day. I feel like that kind of manipulation of time is really fun. And it's something you can do on a very low budget. Uh, Oh, gosh, what was that low budget sci-fi movie about the dinner party? Coherence. Uh but like manipulating time is such a great thing to do on a low budget or or with limited resources because all you have to do is say well now it's 3 days later and suddenly yeah. you've got all this production value that you don't have to build anything for. Um so it's it's something that I always think is a neat trick that doesn't get exploited enough. Right. Yeah.
0: So when you were researching the haunted house mm-hmm. what sort of research I mean you have two ends here. You got the haunted house, but you also have real estate. Uh, was there any like research for the real estate or the haunted house or anything you found really exciting in your research? Well, I didn't do a lot of haunted
2: house research. Um, just because I know a lot of that's enough of that stuff. Um, before I wrote the book, I, I usually have a book that's kind of a touchstone and and Shirley Jackson was really my touchstone for this one. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, but the, yeah, of course I did the research on like, you know, um, with real estate, there's a realtor who works in that neighborhood who I talked to a few times. Um, there's a, a, a estates lawyer who is a friend of our family. So I talked to a bunch of times. Uh, so stuff like that. I definitely, um, I talk to people about their five-year-old kids a lot, uh, just people I knew. So that stuff, I definitely research and I do lots of maps and timelines and all that kind of thing. Um, but, uh, Usually, once I'm done with the book, then I start putting the show together that I'm going to do on on book tour, and uh, that's when I do a deep dive on the research. That's usually like my reward to myself, and that was just a lot of fun. I mean, that was so reading so much stuff about haunted houses, and and you know, it's and and there's so much really interesting thinking out there about haunted houses and and stuff like that. So it was it was that was a real blast. Um, you know, ghost tourism. Um, you know, mm. ghost and real estate and and sort of where haunted houses fit in um the fact that when the economy is crashing, that's usually when we get a a giant boom in haunted houses. um you know, and something that was really interesting for me that I never got to use much because it was it was too. It was too academic. I don't think it's academic, but it was too much of sort of a a serious downer to put in the show. Even though my shows are always full of serious downers, this one was too much. But you know, the whole ghost tourism industry, um, I find so weird because you see it a lot in the South, and you see it, you know, haunted Mm -hmm. plantations, and then you see it like a lot out west in the Southwest is you know haunted bordello tours and things, and you're like so these sex workers and enslaved workers were totally exploited while they were alive and they can't even escape that exploitation and death, mm. you know, that's and, a and, really good point. And so, and like, if you believe in ghosts, like if you believe that ghosts are real, and I hope that if you're like taking a haunted Bordello tour, you believe that ghosts are real. Cause otherwise you're just wasting your money. If you believe <laughs> ghosts are real, I feel like you have to kind of question the ethics of what you're doing there. You know what I mean? You're, you're basically, you know, there's a lot that gets talked about, about, um, and you know, one of the things with all this is like a lot of times people who run these, these ghost tours will take a little bit of information and sort of fabricate these ghost stories out at Myrtle's plantation is a great example. It's like the most haunted place in America and most of the ghosts on their tours are fabricated. Like, there's not any history to them. There's a ghost of an enslaved woman named Chloe and all this stuff. And some of it, oh, that person did exist, but that's not how they died. You know, they're bits and pieces are cobbled together. And I feel like a lot gets said about, um, we're we're really hooked on narrative right now. I think we're really narrative drunk. Uh, The power of story. You know, uh, a lot of Me Too uh, was about, about being able to tell your story. Uh, and to right. set up an, a counter story to the prevailing narrative, uh, the liberation of telling your story. You know, identity is such a big thing that we talk about. We talk about that, you know, our identity is a story of us. We don't talk about how storytelling and narrative can be a trap and a prison that kind of captures these people on the worst st- You know, a woman... Who's a sex right. worker in the nineteenth century? Who's murdered by her customer, and or or who gets pregnant by her lover and kills herself when he won't marry her? You trap that person in the worst day of their lives and use the worst possible thing that ever happened to them to define them in in their entirety, and they are now that narrative becomes their prison. And I mm-hmm. think that is sort of the flip side of this this narrative intoxication we've got. Um, so that was really fun, so, but that's very hard to do in a show when people are drinking and, you know, want, want to, want to, want a sex joke. Um, yeah. I, I like my shows, but it's just like, you do, I, I've done a lot of them. So after a while I develop a taste, so the audience will go this far, but no further. Um, right. you know, I did, I did one for, we sold our souls about heavy metal and horror. And at one point it talks about the satanic panic. And right. I would say, you know, um, you know, on whatever date, 1986, uh, this, this woman with, you know, children testified that uh, to their parents that she uh, would make them paint with the devil's uh, arm. I never understood what that meant, that she would stick, uh, you know, peanut butter up, up their butts and then would murder them and, and feed them to sharks in a swimming pool behind their daycare center and then use black magic to bring them back to life before their parents pick them up. And everyone would laugh. And then I'd be like, so-and-so is served 14 years in prison for those accusations." Yeah. And that would always like cut out. But like, I could do that three times. I couldn't do it more. And then I had to have a big, because it really did kick people's legs out from under them.
0: Yeah. In New Hope, I'm near, I'm near New Hope, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And they have the ghost tours. And just yeah. like you said, a lot of it is the Underground Railroad. All right, oh, got the, sure. that, uh, a ghost of a child because they'll show you here is the literal underground railroad the, the tunnel and there's a story about this you know little girl and it's like yeah okay it's always these same things mm-hmm. and that's interesting because if i asked you who did jack the ripper kill you would say five prostitutes but they right, weren't really I they know. weren't there's a great book called the five and it actually explores all five women mm-hmm. and their lives and it's just like you said like those five women, until this book really came out, and they have a podcast on it as well, they were prostitutes since they died. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's the, the worst day on our life. Not, not only did that happen, but now they're labeled prostitutes for the rest of their lives. And it's this yeah. woman who wrote this book. It's a great book. How much of the relationship between Louise and her brother, do you, do you pull anything from your own family? Do you have, like, oh, siblings? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got okay. three
2: older sisters and a younger brother. Um, so uh, yeah, no, and, and lots of stuff is taken out. And I take things from friends' stories they tell me about their families. I always ask for permission if I'm gonna do that. But uh, my right. family's learned to expect it at this point. Um, <laughs> and you know, and oftentimes it's like a family story will form the seed of something, and the version that winds right. up in the book is the more interesting, more out there version, you know? Uh, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, life is usually uh, more realistic and authentic than uh than than anything you can make up so yeah it's it's i kind of almost have to do that to make it seem real
0: yeah you did a really great job of building this family and making you really buy into this relationship because it's great how you have louise is like on the outside she's definitely this strong female character and then we have internally they all they Mean And this happens to me, it's anybody in a family, and I think this is what you did so good, is that you can be whoever you are in the real world, but the minute you show up with your family, you're back to that kid again. Yeah,
2: absolutely. Um, And that's, you know, and that's one of those things that's so prevalent. And everyone does, even people who don't believe that and like, um, they don't think that, you know? Uh, know in their gut that it's true because they've experienced it, you know? I think we all have. Um, and, and you know, it's one of those funny things um, where I feel like your relationship with your family is so screwed up by the time you leave home around 18 that it's like when you meet people after that, it's like a chance to have a do-over. Like, you've seen yourself at your worst. and And, you yeah. know, and it's like, and 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 so it's and it's really really hard I think because we all sort of reinvent ourselves right uh, after we leave home to some extent and um, it's very very hard to figure out your relationship with people who don't see the adult you who don't see that you that started at eighteen or seventeen or whatever age it is they see the you all the way back to the beginning you know I, I know someone who's going through this right now where they're super accomplished professionally and um and their family treats them like, you know, <laughs> this like immature, spoiled brat because they had a few bratty years when they were 9, 10 and 11. You know right. what I mean and like but their whole family is like they're there and very patronizing and this person is like this incredibly accomplished individual and it's really weird to see that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's really funny that's like that i see the comedy that comes out in yeah in your story really comes out of that that exchange between them. right
2: well and, and it's also yeah. if you want to resist that you can't because you your siblings down there in the mud slinging it at you and you're you can resist short amount of time and then you're going to be down in the mud too
0: yeah there's no they know too much they've yeah. been there they know yeah. what buttons work, and it's just other people you can walk away from, but siblings, even if you try, they'll get they'll know where to go. Yeah, um, and it's
2: it's also interesting though, because it is you know, I'm going through the my my, my parents are passed or my, my sisters and my brother and I our parents are passing away at, at this point and getting older and stuff. and um it is strange though, because you kind of feel like this this civilization is dying to some extent, and then your siblings become the only people who speak this language, you know, left in the world of your family. It's very strange. I've always wondered if one of the reasons, you know, I think one of the reasons Superman resonates with people so much, and and A, we all have that fantasy, right? I'm not really part of this family. I'm like an adopted kid from a royal family. I think that, (laughs) but I also wonder if that dynamic is something that's really ingrained in us, that here's this only child Survivor of this lost world that no one remembers but them, and isn't that the loneliest thing in the world? And and I yeah. think there's something like primal about that in terms of like that dynamic with our families passing, our parents dying, and our siblings dying. That that really taps into.
0: Yeah, I think there was a line in Garden State, the movie that Zach crafted, did, and it was just that everyone is just trying to find that home. Mm -hmm. that they grew up in yeah you know it's just like once that's gone the rest of your life you're sort of trying to get back there
2: yeah i think that's true and it's also really interesting you know there was um i was looking at a lot of um twitter stuff uh and social media stuff where people were talking about their parents dying and like i actually i cleaned out a house of a friend who passed away And um, I I have a a friend who was, when I was writing the book, who was in town, his dad had died and he was here cleaning out his house. So I talked to a lot of people about that. And I was looking on social media, people doing that and people doing their parents' time. And it was really interesting to read about how hard that act of dealing with the stuff is. And I mean, and I had even experienced that when my friend Dan died. Um, You know, he was a collector and he collected a lot of stuff and you go in with all these these big ideas, like, oh, we're going to put this stuff up on eBay, we're going to sell it, and the physical exhaustion of just dealing with all of someone's crap, and then the the emotional exhaustion of dealing with all of someone's crap, Yeah. by day two, we're just, like, putting it in garbage bags and hauling it to Goodwill. We're like, who cares?
0: I feel like a sort of a hoarder, so Mm. uh, not so much like the ones you would see. I would never make it on the show, but I like things, and I feel like if I had to go through that, that would be a very difficult thing. I would need someone that would be like, here's the trash bags. You're going to just put this stuff in there yeah. and get there.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, it's interesting. Um, I don't know if you watched, uh Succession, but there's a moment mm-hmm. in the last episode where um, someone describes the the sticker process for stickering the things you want in, in someone who's died house. And it's, to me, the funniest moment in that show. Because the sticker procedure is so complicated, and so baroque, and so just ridiculously over the top. But I've had that conversation with my mom, and I've had that conversation with another friend of mine, with his mom. And, like, every process for how to say what you want from someone's house is so complicated, intricate. Like, it's so ridiculous. it's it's just so weird. Uh, and one of the nice things was I, I realized because uh, my mom had a lot of health scares over the last few years, so so I'm the executor of her will, and we talked about it. And I was like, oh, I just don't want that much that's here. Like, there's a couple, and I'm sure when the time comes when she dies, I'll be like, oh no, that
1: that that can't go yeah. in the garbage.
2: <laughs> but there's like two or three things I want, and the rest I'm like, I can I can live without, you know. Um, so that that was a nice moment to be like, okay, so I won't wind up with just a lot
0: of crap and storage. Right. Now, did you find this, one, was this a difficult write for you compared to your prior books? And do you think you could have written this book earlier? No,
2: I wasn't a good enough writer, technically, um, to write about a family earlier. I I just did not have that in me. Um, And I found this difficult to write. I mean, I had to delay publication by six months because the book just wasn't landing. But that had more to do with I couldn't get an ending that worked. Um, I wrote three completely different books with three completely different endings before I wound up with with this book with this ending. I mean, um, and, and the thing that was so hard is I was really committed to this idea that there was another. I, I really like this idea that your parents were very different people before you were born and mm-hmm. that we often don't know that backstory in history as well as we should. And um, so I really wanted to tie in a lot of the stuff in the book with uh, the mom and dad's history before the kids were born, and um, it just it just wasn't working. It was it was introducing all these characters in the third act. It was going suddenly in the third act to somewhere the reader's never been before. It was just getting way too complicated. So um, yeah,
0: I could see you end up writing in a completely another book in that. In that time period, you know, because you could do a prequel. That's basically what you're doing.
2: Yeah, I mean, there was a version with a puppet cult in it. There was a version (laughs) with like weird inbred country neighbors. There was a version with like uh, a haunted uh, abandoned um, roadside attraction theme park with a marionette theater in it. I mean, radically different books. Um, I mean, not and not to spoil anything. But if you've read the book Spider, Spider didn't even show up until version three. Uh, And then the book you're Mm. reading now is version four. You know, in previous versions, the big end of the book set piece was Louise getting buried alive. Which was a great scene. And I wrote it a lot and a lot of different versions of it. But it was just like, it just didn't
1: work.
0: Yeah. The book is a slow burn when it comes to Mm. the haunting of it. Yeah. Right. And they're really tiny little touches, little things you put in. Did you go into it with that intention of like, I'm just going to pepper in things and this slowly it's just going to increase in drama about these things that are happening?
2: Yeah, well, I knew that I had to get readers to buy into the, the emotional story of this family. An apparent dying and a sibling relationship that's just tragically screwed up. Um, I knew I had to get the readers buying into that before I started throwing in a bunch of other stuff. And one of the things I didn't so much think like, oh, I need little bits to like hook people and, and reassure them that more haunted dolls are coming. But one moment I knew I wanted in there was... Um, it's it's a it's a it's a feeling i always had a lot growing up that sort of late afternoon feeling when you're in your house alone as a kid and it just the rooms around you don't feel empty and there's mm-hmm. just it's just there's an element the sun's out it's bright it's cheery nothing's wrong but it just the house feels like it's not empty and yeah and I knew that would have to come early because it's a sort of quiet, more haunted moment. And that would be there with Louise. and then the little things she's noticing that are wrong. So I knew that needed to be there. Um and then, yeah, and so I so I knew I had that. And then, um, and then the thing with dolls is you just can't imagine that that many tiny humanoids, and that many eyes aren't looking at something or doing something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're they're inanimate. It's just not convincing. Yeah. So, and I knew I had that. And and the 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 une- that Dolls are more about unease than scariness. Once you see the doll actually move, it's like oh, it's just a doll. I can put it in Tupperware. Right. Uh. But but wondering if the doll is moving is is uneasy, and you get a lot of mileage out of that.
0: Yeah. I find that fascinating that you said that because that is absolutely the, the whole opening of that is the unease of the dolls. Like you, you don't really need to have them do anything. You know, they're there as the reader, you know, they're there. They're watching just them being in a chair and then not being in a chair is all it takes. Exactly.
2: And, and it's like, it's, you can't do a whole lot more with dolls. You know what I mean? Like, like, once the doll is moving 100%, well, you outweigh it. You're bigger than it. Yes, it's scary the doll's moving, but what's it going to do? Um, you know, there's a great book called uh, by Carol Beach York called Revenge of the Dolls. Um, really slim YA. It's from the 70s. Um, but it's so beautifully written and so moody and just, but there are these killer dolls in it. And you never see them move. And they manage to be really, really terrifying. Um, it, it, it really works. It's uh, it's it's great. If people ever come across that, Carol B. Uh, um Revenge of the Dolls. It's like Let's 92 it pages in large print for kids. But that and uh, William Slater's, um What's the Sleater book? Among the Dolls. Uh, or mm-hmm. two genuinely upsetting doll stories written for kids in the seventies.
0: Did you like research a lot of doll stories? So you wouldn't be doing what they've After, already done for the show for the show. Okay.
2: Yeah. Um, uh, but not before, I mean, with haunted dolls, I'm like, I have a good idea of what they've done. You know what I mean? And so like, I, I knew stuff I wanted to avoid and like, I didn't really want to sit down and watch like the 13 puppet master movies, you know?
1: Right. nothing wrong with those movies, but just, yeah.
0: Yeah. What about the, um, squirrels that was that just because like, why did they get involved with dolls? Like I get the taxidermy, but the squirrels were, um, kind of shocking when that happened.
1: Yeah.
2: So that is actually, um, Jenny Lawson, basically. I don't know if you know her at all. She's a writer, um, I think down in Texas, uh, but she's part of the Fantastic Strangelings book club. And um I've zoomed with her a few times to do events and stuff during the pandemic, and she has this enormous taxidermy collection. And mm. a lot of it is inherited, I think, from her dad. And she dresses them up and, and puts <laughs> little outfits on them and stuff. And I'm not sure if he's a fan of that. But um uh but yeah, and so that was a real that was an inspiration for Jenny Lawson.
0: Yeah, that was really well done. I think that's hilarious that somebody dresses up taxidermy animals.
2: Well, I mean, and you see these things with like, you know, kitten last suppers, taxidermy kitten last suppers or tea parties and things. I'm like, why hasn't someone done something? People are so revulsed, repulsed by that. I'm like, why hasn't anyone done anything with that? That's sitting right there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it is. You know, even Norman Bates had this taxidermy collection. So yeah. I, I think they connect that with some kind of, you know, there's something to it. If you think about Ed Gain being this guy who would like, you know, inspired right. like Texas Chainsaw. And even it was this sort of taxidermy thing. Creeps well, out. I
2: mean, there's, there's the, with taxidermy, I mean, it's that automatonophobia, right? This fear of yeah. things that look human and alive that aren't uh, dolls, right. puppets, taxidermy mannequins. But I think with Ed Gein and, and Norman Bates, you know, it's the same. It's the same um, knee-jerk reaction we have to morticians. Um, um, that someone who hangs around dead stuff a lot is creepy. Yeah. Um, you know, there's something weird about someone who hangs around death, dead stuff, and touches it. Yeah, uh, and I think that's pretty. That's pretty embedded in most cultures.
0: This book, can you, am I oh yeah, yeah. By, uh, this cover, like they say, don't judge a book by a cover. This I bought this before I knew who you were. This in Barnes and Noble because of the cover, and uh-huh. I, you know how much do you have in that? I, I was looking at the the guys who illustrated and designed it, but do you have any say in that, or is that just the uh, publisher?
2: Well, so that was yes and no. So the original Best Friends Exorcism hardcover, um,
1: uh, this guy sort of Tim, darker.
2: yeah, Tim O'Connell or O'Dowell. I think O'Connell. Tim O'Connell was the art director at Quirk at the time, and we talked a lot about doing it like a yearbook and all that. And really went. he and my editor, Jason Rakulik and I, we really went back and forth a lot on that. And the same with horror store. Um, mm-hmm. and we, I love that hardcover. There's so much great stuff in it. The stuff he's done in the interior with the yearbook signatures and things. Yeah, But then Doogie Horner, who was, had been at Quirk previously and left, he came back as art director cause Tim, uh, took another job. And, uh, And the paperback, he didn't have enough time to do a new cover when he came on board. And he was just, uh, we were going to run with the hardcover for the paperback. And Doogie's like, no, that's not right. He's like, we're going to do it as a VHS tape. And Mm. I was like, that's a great idea. My editor was like, that's a great idea. But he honestly didn't have enough time to do it. And he managed to find this guy, Hugh Fleming, who's an Australian artist, um, to do it. And Hugh was like, there is not enough yeah. time to do this. I will give you one concept sketch so you can make corrections on. And that's it. The next thing you see will be finished art. And we were like, okay. And he said, it's the concept art. And it was phenomenal. And we had a few notes. He executed them in the finished product. And that, that cover has sold a, a butt ton of books for me. Uh, but that is mm-hmm. all Jason and Hugh and Doogie. Uh, I was a cheerleader going, yeah, yeah, yeah. this is a great idea. But uh, they really, really knocked that out of the park.
0: Yeah, it really worked. Like, just walking through Barnes & Noble, that stopped me in my tracks. I'm like, what? what is that? And yeah. I bought it, loved it. Um, so what did you think of the Amazon Prime movie?
2: I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's real different than the book. Um, I thought the actors did a great job. I thought Elsie um, Fisher um, uh, was really phenomenal in it. Mm -hmm. uh but i thought amia miller who's i only really knew her from the planet of the apes movies um she was sort of the mvp like i feel like uh it was the reverse. like in rain man i always am like yes yes dustin hoffman but tom cruise as the straight man really does the harder heavier lifting and i felt like in this is in the reverse where uh elsie fisher was sort of the straight man role and amia miller was the dustin hoffman role but man, she really nailed it. Um, yeah. The one thing I did like that was very uh, uh, proof of concept for me was um, Chris Lowell, who plays the uh, ex or brother Lemon, the Exorcist. Most of his exchanges with Elsie Fisher as Abby were right out of the book, and I thought they worked so well. And like, and I was just like, and it just. The idea of this older redneck-y exorcist uh, with this younger sort of disbelieving woman uh, was just a dynamic that really worked so, so nicely, um, which I liked a yeah, lot. I,
0: I thought it was really fun. Uh, there was yeah. a, I was looking on Rotten Tomatoes and there was a thing that says, fans of the 2016 source novel by Grady Hendrix says, it lacks some of the best stuff from the book, but it's silly, passable fun nonetheless. Yeah. that's. And and uh I agree, it was definitely fun. I enjoyed it. I thought the the cast was great. Um what part did you have because I'm I'm looking up that you wrote the book, but did you give a teleplay at all or did no. it just go to Jenna?
2: No, at the time I really this was the first. Well, I guess horror yeah. store is the first thing I'll do. This is the first thing often really early on, and uh this in Horror Store, when it was with um the Jackal group, which uh, Uh, but anyways, and so, um, and I was really like, I'm writing the books. The books are different than the movies. I don't want anything to do with them. And honestly, I read an early draft of Best Friends Exorcism, had a few notes, and then I didn't see them again for three years until the movie was done. Um, Wow. But, but sort of in that process, it's funny. Um, a couple of things happen where not with my Best Friends Exorcism, with another book, I was like, you know what? I'm going to be involved in this. So now I'm I'm I've written the horror store screenplay that's set up with a director attached. Uh, and my I mean, right now the WGA strike sort of shut everything down. Uh, yeah. I'm one of the writers on Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, which is over at HBO. Um, I am a, a oh I the writer on How to Sell a Haunted House, which is set up with Legendary and a director named James Ashcroft. So. I'm really deeply involved with stuff now. Uh, I'm either writing it or uh, an active creative producer.
1: Well, that's good. Yeah, I'll it's nice. That.
2: It's um, I just I just realized early on that um, I cared a lot about these books, and one of the things that really surprised me, um, and I learned this from screenwriting, is that um, with my books, I really have to have the title. To some extent. And if I don't have the title, or even if I do, I need a log line for the book. Like my best friend's ex does mm-hmm. the log lines, you know, it's about two girls during the satanic panic whose friendship is strong enough to beat Satan. That's all you need. That Perfect. log line is what keeps me sort of oriented in the right direction because writing a book takes a long time and you get lost along the way. Right. And so that keeps me oriented while writing it. And that's sort of the engine that drives the story. And, um, I realized that it was very obvious for me what the engine was for these stories, that sort of simple basic concept that, you know, put it in space, put it in a in a in a different time period, recast it with all men or armadillos, but you need that engine to stay the same because yeah. that engine is what works. And yeah. um and I realized that for me it was very obvious because I had built the car. But for a lot of people coming to look at the car, they're like, Oh, well, what makes this car work is its sleek design. And other people would say, oh no, what makes this car works is its compact interior. And, and it's like, no, it's actually the engine. Just like and so I realized there was a value in being the guy with these projects who was like who kept calling people back to that sort of core
0: concept. Um you know
1: That's great. I am
0: Southern really looking Book Club. to all this. If
2: it ever happened. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead.
0: No, that's all right. Um, you, you were talking about Southern Book Club. Oh,
2: it's just gonna say if it ever happens, uh, it's it's set in the present day. You know the book's set in the '90s, and it's set in the present day, which does result in a lot of changes, but none of yeah. them affect that core concept. So they're all fine.
0: Yeah, I know you're working on something else, but you probably can't talk about it. Uh, well, I'm. I just a few weeks ago, I just turned in the first draft to
2: my editor after God, ten months of writing. Really depressing how slow I am these days. Um. But of a book of the next novel, and it's hopefully coming out next year, seems to still be on track to do that. Um, But it's 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 sort of a Rosemary's baby set in a home for Mm. unwed mothers in 1970. Um, Because who better to write about a bunch of pregnant characters than a childless middle aged man?
0: Um, But uh, do write a lot about it. You do have a lot of female leads. Uh, Yeah. Find You find it easier to write for them? Yeah, I, I it's it's
2: really nice to have a character who is very different than me. Otherwise you start mm-hmm. like I don't know, I have a hard time yeah, seeing it's them. Yeah, and it's like I, I need to have some difference that keeps the person at arm's length for me so I can see them from the right as a person rather than an extension of myself. Um and it just having them be a different a different uh gender really helps.
0: That's great. Uh, so we're almost out of time. You are going to be hosting the drive-in this weekend. Is it this yeah. weekend? Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it
2: is. Gosh, it's the 16th. I always get, I'm very, very bad at my. Um,
0: yeah, it uh, is the 16th. Yeah. Actually, I have it up here. What is it? The uh, 16th, 16th and the 17th? 17th. It's yep. the Friday haunted Saturday. house party. Yes, the haunted house yep. party.
1: So
2: it's on the first night, I think it's Poltergeist, The Legend of Hell House and Burn Offerings. And then the second night, it's Shirley Jackson's *The Haunting*, *The Changeling*, not the one with Angelina Jolie, the one with George C. Scott, and then *Poltergeist* 2, the other side. Um, and yeah. I'll be doing on both nights. I've I've taken the show I do and I've chopped it in half, and then I've added a lot of material to it uh, and changed a lot of the material to it, so it works. So it'll be it'll be two thirty or forty minute intro seminars with visuals uh about dealing with ghosts and 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 I'm trying to keep it to the there's a lot in my show about haunting of hill house and burn offerings and so I'm trying to keep it you know the impulter guys to, to stuff that's going to relate to the movie screening that night
0: will you be doing uh book signings
2: oh yeah I'll be selling books I'll be signing books I'll I'll be signing books I sell I'll be signing right. books people bring anything you put in front of me I'll sign I'm pretty I'm pretty slutty that way <laughs>
0: Yeah, I'm hoping to get out there Friday night. I, that's actually oh cool. What Poltergeist? Yeah, it would be it'd be great. I love Poltergeist. Uh, Hell House is yeah. great. I wish The Changeling was on because I love that George C. Scott. I think that that movie really is still holds up with the underrated. Creep yeah, yes. it's
2: underrated. Well, it'd be interesting because Legend of Hell House is such a weird movie. Like the sound design so dank and the visuals yes. are so warped. It's going to be very cool to see that on a big screen. Uh, but I'm also Great. very curious about burnt offerings on a big screen because that's a movie that is so campy and ridiculous and over the top mm-hmm. in parts.
1: So I'm very curious to see how that plays. Yeah.
0: Well, I want to thank you for coming on my show. Yeah. And if I uh, I'm there Friday night, I'll stop by and say hi and actually get you yeah, to absolutely. sign some of this stuff I have here. I'll uh, I'll, and, I'll be uh,
2: signing my my heart out.
0: All right. Well, thanks again, Grady.
1: Cool. Thanks for having me, man. Take care.
0: All right. Take care.
1: Bye-bye.